Amen. Well, it is certainly good to be gathered together today with the local church, and um, we're excited and thankful for everyone that's here as we kick off our 2021 iteration of Real Life Big Questions, Real Life More Big Questions, we're calling it, and we're going to strive over the next several days to answer five questions about life and faith and Christianity and the Bible. Today we begin in our first session by looking at the question, the all-important question, who is God? Who is God? And if you are not familiar with Christianity, if you maybe have never been to church before, I want to tell you at the outset that we will strive to answer this question today and all the other questions from the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the written word of God. It is a series of letters and other historical writings that were compiled over centuries. They're written by men who were led word by word by the Spirit of God. Every word of the Bible, we believe, is true. Now, this understanding of the Bible presumes that God does indeed exist. We all have these presumptions, these presuppositions in life, and to believe that the Bible is God's word, we must firstly believe that God exists, that he has existed from eternity past, and that he will always exist because that's what he says about himself in the Bible. The Holy Scriptures tell us that one of the greatest evidences of God himself is his creation. Romans 1 verse 20 says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that the world is without excuse. So you may be here, you may be listening to this and say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe that God exists. Well, God tells you that you are without excuse. You have taken a breath today. Your body, your life is a miracle that is brought into existence by God. And the creation, everything around us is a miracle that was created and is sustained by God. There are many proofs that we can go into in science that prove the veracity of the events recorded in Scripture. But time limits us. That's not our purpose today. We want to consider the question, who is God? As we think about the Bible, we must understand that the Bible is God's Word. John Piper, a famous pastor and theologian and Christian professor, wrote this in his version of the Baptist Catechism about God's Word. He said that the Bible evidences itself to be God's Word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, by the unity of its parts, and by its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. The Bible proves itself to be the Word of God because it is true, because it is cohesive, written over centuries, and because we see the outworking of its power, both to convert sinners, to bring dead souls to life, and then to make those converted sinners to be more and more like Christ. So to answer our question today of who is God, we have to make these two assumptions. We have to have these two presuppositions that God does exist And that the Bible, the 66 books contained in the Bible, are indeed God's holy, true, and fully revealed Word. With that, let's turn to God's Word. Revelation, chapter 21. 
Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It has 22 chapters, so if you go to the very end of your Bible and flip a couple pages backward, you will find Revelation chapter 21. We'll focus on verses 5 through 8 today. Again, we're answering the question, who is God? And I want to submit to you today that God is the God who saves and condemns. That is who God is. Now, I want to read this text and then ask the Lord's blessing on our time. I want to back up to the beginning of this chapter. There's a glorious scene here that John has been revealed by the grace of God. And so I want to read verses 1 through 8, and then we will dive into this text and, and look at the God who saves and condemns. Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now this is the verses that we want to focus on, verses 5 through 8 today. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is the word of the living God. Now let's go before his throne in prayer. Father, we come now and we understand that any preaching and any receiving of your word is an absolute miracle whereby your spirit powerfully works in our hearts and our minds to to help our dull understanding, to help our cold and hard hearts to see and to receive and to apply the holy and helpful and sanctifying truth of your word. And so, God, our prayer today is that your spirit would have the freedom to move among us in this time. Lord, it is your word that has the power to bring dead souls to life. It is through the preaching of the gospel that those who remain in their sin can be brought to life, converted away from their sin, and be made alive in Christ. And so I pray today that if there are any who hear this word that do not know Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they leave their sin and turn and run to Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Lord, for those who are in Christ, I pray that this glorious vision of the eternity that awaits us would fill our hearts with joy, that it would fill us with steadfastness, that it would cause us to long to be holy just as you who have called us are holy. Lord, if we are going to worship at your foot, at your throne for all eternity, we must be made more like Christ. We know that you will complete that work perfectly in eternity. But we also know that you begin that work and it progresses through our entire lives on this earth. So Lord, as we look to and long for heaven, as we hope in Christ, may we purify ourselves just as he was and is and ever will be pure and holy. Lord, again, this is a work that only you can accomplish. Our efforts, our thoughts, our words will all fail. But Lord, you are strong and mighty. You are seated on your throne and you can accomplish whatever it is that you will and desire to accomplish. So we pray, Lord, today that you would be glorified in our time together, that you would transform our hearts and our lives so that we would be made more and more like Christ. We pray this all for your sake and for your glory and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the book of Revelation, you think if we're going to answer the question, who is God? You say, well, so we're going to go to the book of Revelation, one of the most challenging texts in all of the Bible to interpret. It's a prophetic book in a way, and so it definitely does have its challenges. However, this passage before us, Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8, are absolutely crystal clear. In the midst of John's glorious vision of the new heaven and the new earth, he sees the Lord as the sovereign ruler. He sees the Lord as the eternal creator. He sees God as the life-giving Savior and as the just judge. These verses give us a clear contrast of those who are in Christ and what awaits them in eternity and those who are not in Christ and what awaits them in eternity. We must see from this text that God is indeed a just judge. He will judge every person to ever live. He will judge them on the basis of his own standard. If you are found to be in Christ, you will receive eternity in heaven, you will be his son. You will go to be with him. If you die, if you pass from this life to the next, and you're found not to be in Christ, you will receive the just punishment of your sins. Eternity in hell and the lake of fire and brimstone, which is, as our text says, the second death. So as we work through these verses, the aim is that you would examine yourself that you would examine your life to see if you are indeed in and of the faith, to see if you are indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you come to the Father by the work of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you stand before God as an unbelieving and immoral idolater, or do you stand before him as one who is washed in the blood of the Lamb? John 1.29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Do you stand before him as one who's washed in that blood of that lamb? Or do you just stand before him in your own sin and in your own condemnation? That is what we must reckon with today as we look to God's word. So we're going to look at four descriptions of God in this text. I've already stated them one time. Firstly, we want to look at God as the sovereign ruler. God as sovereign ruler. In verse 5, John there, he, he sees and he writes, he says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So when we see God as the sovereign ruler, to describe him as sovereign means that he is the rightful king and that he has authority over all things. And that is seen by the fact, by the statement that he is seated on the throne. For no common man is allowed to sit on the king's throne. Thrones do not belong to common or powerless men, but to kings who rule and reign and have command and authority over their subjects. All things are God's subjects, and he sits on the throne. For no prince will sit on a throne. No chief advisor to the king will sit on the throne, but only the king of king and lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 describes Jesus as being the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. That's what it means to be the sovereign one who's on the throne, that you're king of kings and lord of lords. So there's power and authority and dominion and honor pictured in this one little statement. And he who sits on the throne. We see there that God is sovereign. He is the king, the supreme one, the one who has all authority. Not only is God seated on the throne, but we see that he is the ruler because he says, I am making all things new. If he is the sovereign and the ruler, he then therefore has authority. He has the right to make all things new. In a few moments, we'll talk about what happens when God makes all things new. There's a foretaste of that even in this life, though it is a an issue that is fulfilled in eternity, but we'll talk about that in a moment, making all things new. But firstly, let's consider that it is God who does that work. It is God who makes all things new. For it's only the sovereign ruler who has the power and authority to create anything. And if he has the power and the authority to create anything, he also has the power and authority to destroy, to cause those things to pass away. And then he also has power and authority to make those things new again. We saw in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Only the sovereign ruler has the authority to create and then destroy. This is, this is the importance of creation. Think back to Genesis 1 verse 1, the first verse in the Bible. There, Moses, under the inspiration of God, said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If it was in the beginning anyone else created the heavens and the earth, then God would not be just to destroy them. It is only the creator of all things who has authority to destroy or to create. So while that sounds like a simple enough verse, when we really think about it, 
it has enormous and eternal consequences. All the ills of our world really could be, could be handled and dealt with if we would go back to Genesis 1-1 and, and understand that in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created all things, and therefore, he is over and in and through all things. So we see God as the sovereign ruler. And then moving to the end of verse 5, we see something that is, I think, both interesting and fascinating. So, so follow with me here. In verse 5, it says, I am making all things new. And then he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Now, so again, we're, ending the, the, we're nearing the end of Revelation. John has written over 20 chapters of Scripture. He has seen amazing and astounding things. And at this point, it's, it's here that we get the impression that he's dropped his pen. He's no longer writing because the Lord has to command him, pick up your pen and write because these things are faithful and true. Now, I want you to, to see some of this. Flip back with me to Revelation chapter 7. Now, we don't have time to read all of the amazing things that would be seen in Revelation, but I do want you to get a little picture of some of the glory that has been revealed so you understand the, the majesty of what's going on. Revelation 7, picking up in verse 9. It said, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. So we have this multitude, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. They worshipped him saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's a glorious scene. Flip back another page or two to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. John writes there, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So this was the myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels and living creatures and elders. But the text there goes on. It says, verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, those are glorious scenes that John has, has seen through this revelation. He's seen and he's kept writing. But now suddenly the Lord has to tell him, John, Pick up your pen and write. Those scenes displayed a great, glorious picture of God, 
And yet it's here when the new heaven and the new earth and God seated on his throne or before John's eyes, before his spirit, that he drops his pen and the Lord has to say, pick up your pen, John, and write. What point did he become so overwhelmed that the Lord had to tell him this? It was at the sight of God seated on his throne. And because he's seen the Lord on his throne, so it's not only that, but it's the Lord on his throne with the new heavens and the new earth coming about. This is a glorious view of what God's people will experience in eternity. This is a glorious view of what you will experience in eternity if you are in Christ. So we see God is the sovereign ruler. He tells John, keep writing, these things are faithful and true. Revelation 19.11 describes Jesus as faithful and true. John writes there, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So as Jesus wages war and judges in faithfulness and according to the truth, John saw him, the glorious Savior. And now we also see a humbling and glorious vision where God says, these things that I'm writing, these things that you are seeing are faithful and true. The Lord told John to write these things down. Dear friends, he tells us to read and study these things and to allow them to be by the Holy Spirit written upon our hearts. When's the last time you studied the glory, and the majesty, the beauty and the splendor of God. He says, these things are faithful and true. Allow the Spirit to write them upon your heart. And now as God has promised to make all things new, as I said, there's a view towards the the finality of the final state of all things when he makes all things new with the new heaven and new earth. But there is a preview. There is a foretaste. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Paul wrote there that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and the new things have come. The the old has passed away. The new has come. That is a preview, a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth because we are changed. We are transformed. We now have the Spirit of God in us. We experience God in a way that you cannot experience when you do not know Christ, when you do not have his spirit living within you. This is a mark of those who are made new through Jesus. They are devoted to him. They love him. They obey him. And their lives are consumed with and by him. So as a sovereign ruler, God is seated on his throne. The old things, the first heaven, the first earth have passed away. And he is bringing about the new heaven and the new earth. He is making all things new. Secondly, then, let's look at God as the eternal creator. God as eternal creator in verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We'll come back to that first statement, it is done, because there is much to see there. But let's begin. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's a similar statement to 
to how God started this revelation to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse, verse 8. The Lord said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha, the Omega, the one who was, who is, who is to come, the Almighty, the one who has always existed, who always will exist, who always was, who always is, and who always will be. Matthew Henry interpret, interpreted this statement by saying or writing the following. He said, as it was God's glory that he gave rise and beginning to the world and to his church, it will be his glory to finish the work he began and not to leave it imperfect. This world is imperfect, and it will glorify God to bring this work, this world, to perfection. As his power and will, Henry continued, were fir the first cause of all things, his pleasure and his glory are the last end, and he will not lose his design. His pleasure and his glory are the ultimate end of creation, and he will not lose his design. He will be glorified in all things. Colossians 1 shows this picture of Christ, who is in all and through all, and who is glorified by all. Verse 16 and 17 of Colossians 1. Paul wrote there of Jesus, By him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So as the Alpha and Omega, God says he is the beginning and the end. The, the entire Godhead, the Trinity, is the beginning and the end. He's the one who created all things, and then the one who will rightfully, justly bring all things to an end. God is the eternal creator. And all things coming to an end, surely, dear friends, only refers to the physical. We have eternal souls. Our souls will live on forever. We will receive a glorified body into eternity. Uh, souls will live on in eternity in hell for those who are not in Christ. So when we say that God is the creator and he will also bring all things to an end, we know that that speaks to the physical, for we will live forever. So then that leads us back to the statement at the beginning of verse 6. God says, it is done. Now that should bring to mind maybe a statement from the Lord Jesus Christ. As he hung on the cross, he cried out right before he breathed his last breath. He cried out, it is finished. Now, these are different words in the Greek, but they bring with them the same concept. Jesus spoke of God's work in providing a way for redemption. Jesus spoke of his work on the cross. It is finished. The price for your redemption has been paid. But now God, he speaks of all of redemptive history. He says, it is done. God is bringing a completion, a complete finality to all things. MacArthur said of this that everything is done. This is the moment when redemptive history ends. God is saying then, as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, as the eternal creator and the sovereign ruler, that this is the moment where he will bring his creation to a completion. You say, okay, what does that have to do with us? How does that affect my life today? 
Well, friends, there's nothing that you can do to stop or to thwart or to slow down or to derail God's plan. Only God is creator. Only God can bring all things to an end, and he will do it when he pleases. He could do it this second. He could do it a year from now. He could do it 10,000 years from now. We cannot affect that. So really what that has to do with us is everything because you better get on board with God's plan. You better get about the Lord's business. You better seek to ensure that you are found in Christ because he will end this world or he could end your life in the flash of an eye, in the blink of an eye, in the flash of, of a lightning bolt. All things for you, even if it's not the world, all things for you could come to an end. So ask yourself, Am I in Christ? You must hear the call of Christ and respond to him in faith and repentance. So God is sovereign ruler. He is eternal creator. Thirdly, then, let's look at him as the life-giving Savior. God is life-giving Savior in the second half of verse 6 and in verse 7. He continues, he says, I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, all throughout the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, we see this idea that God sees himself and describes himself as the source of living water. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord said, My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, the Lord offers this free mercy by saying, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come to me, he says. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy drink without money and without cost. The Lord is the source of living waters, and he bids you to come and to drink without cost. We see this again in the New Testament. The Gospel of John shows this picture multiple times. You think about John chapter 4, the, the story of the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman, Jesus, arrives, and he asks her to get him a drink. And she's sitting there thinking, why, why is he asking me? Samaritans and Jews did not have anything to do with each other. And yet Jesus asked this Samaritan to get him a drink. And, and she says, why did you ask this? Why, why would you... Why would you ask me to do this? And Jesus responded to her and said, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him to give you a drink. And he would have given you living water. Jesus is the source of all living water. He is the fountain of all life. A few chapters later in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus was among a crowd, and he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. Come to me and drink, and then you will flow with living water, because Jesus is the source of living water. So what's the point here? Jesus says, and the, the Lord says that the ones who are thirsty, the ones who come to him or to come and to drink and he will give to them from the spring of the water of life without cost this is again god as the life giving savior 
This is the Lord's offer of salvation, that you come to Him. You come to Him with repentance and with faith, and He will give you eternal life. Come, dear friends, dear ones who are here, come to the fountain of life, Jesus Christ. Come to Him and drink, drink without cost. But you come and you drink without cost, and when you do that, you better be ready to give up your life for Him. You drink not based on your merit, but you drink humbly and freely and fully giving of yourself to Him. That leads us to verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the Apostle John writing. John wrote three epistles earlier in the scriptures, and we can read from 1 John 5, verse 5, where he says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord says that he who overcomes will inherit these things, will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. I will be his God and he will be my son. So what are the marks then of those who overcome? Back in 1 John chapter 5, we see that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then verse 5 that we just read, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we come to Christ. We come to him in repentance and faith. And then he, through the Holy Spirit, empowers us to overcome the world. To overcome our sin, our obedience to him is then not burdensome because we love him and we know the cost of our sin. So if you're asking, if you wonder, am I drinking from the water of life? Ask yourself some simple diagnostic questions. Do I love God? Do I desire to obey him and to please him? Do I desire to obey his commands? You may say yes and yes. Well, let's ask one more question. Is there evidence in your life that you are overcoming the world, that you are overcoming your sin? Because Scripture is clear that the one who is in Christ will overcome. doesn't mean that you will be made perfect. doesn't mean that you won't struggle with and battle against sin in the flesh. But you will see and have victory because you have the spirit of the living God living within you if you are truly in Christ. You say, well, that's not me. Well, there's good news there too, because Jesus still offers. The offer from God is still there to come to the spring of water and to come and to drink without cost, without price. You must come by faith. You must come believing in the work of Jesus, that he was perfect, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that he has ascended to heaven, that he bore your punishment so that you could be credited with his righteousness. You must believe those things, but then you come and you drink freely. You come to be washed, to be cleansed, to be purified. You come and you drink regardless of your own merit. Verse 7 concludes, the Lord says, and I will be his God and he will be my son. So John sees this glorious vision of the new heaven, new earth. The Lord says that those who overcome will inherit these things. You will be a partaker, a participant 
in the new heaven and new earth, and even greater than that, you will be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. What a glorious and hope-filled promise this is, that you come and you drink without price, and you will be counted as righteous and be, become a son of the Most High God. Now, as glorious and hopeful as this is, the the paragraph here continues, the text continues in verse 8, and there's a sober warning there. And so we need to see God not only as the life-giving Savior, but we also see Him as the just judge. God as the just judge. Verse 8 says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, you hear that long list, and and you're going through, check, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not an idolater, I'm not unbelieving, I'm not immoral, I'm not a sorcerer or a murderer. Well, friends, those things don't, uh, that's not the point here. We have to understand. The Bible often gives us lists of sins like this, to say that sin is all-encompassing. James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You say, well, what's law? The Ten Commandments. Just, just start there, real simply. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Jesus said in Matthew 5 that if you even look at a woman with lust, then you have committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? If you've done any of those things, even just one time, James says that you have broken the law. You are guilty of breaking the entire law. Well, if you still don't believe me, Romans 3, 23, then Romans 6, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. It means everyone. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in 6, Romans 6, 23, it says that the wages of sin... Is death. What you deserve for sin is death, eternal death, eternal condemnation. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the contrast of these things should be clear. Our text says that there are some who overcome. There are some who have faith in Christ who overcome their sin and overcome their world by the grace of God that is at work in them. They will overcome and they will become partakers eternally with Christ. There are also some who are headed for eternal condemnation. Those who remain in their sin, who are headed towards hell. And MacArthur describes this contrast, and I think this is a good thing to look at, a good way to consider this. He said, we've gone from joyous anticipation, the new heaven and the new earth, the glory that we will know. We have gone from joyous anticipation to paralyzing fear. But, MacArthur continued, that is the design of God in this passage. This is the design of God to give a final warning. This is the final warning of Scripture in in a way that there are those who will not participate, not be in Christ and be able to go to be in the new heaven and the new earth. Those who are not in Christ, not only will they experience death in this life, 
but they will experience the second death, the eternal lake of fire. This is the punishment that awaits those who do not come to Christ as Lord and Savior in faith and repentance. What is hell? What is the lake of fire, the place of fire and brimstone? In Matthew 8, 12, Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness. And he said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark chapter 9, hell is also described as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is an eternal reality. It is what awaits those who die apart from Jesus Christ. And if that describes you as one who is not in Jesus Christ, hell should scare you. You should be greatly afraid because it is a place of torment, a place of suffering, a place of unquenchable fire where where you will pay for all eternity the price and the cost of your sins. So to wrap up our time, we've considered the question, who is God? We must see that he is ruler, that he is creator, that he is savior, and indeed that he is the judge. As the creator and the ruler of all things, it is God who sets the standard and it is God who then has the right to judge, the, the just and righteous right to judge according to his own standard. But he also made a way of salvation. Friends, you must know that there is hope. There is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So in light of this, I want to give you kind of three questions to consider as we get ready to conclude. We've seen that God is awesome. He is holy. He is majestic. He is glorious. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of honor and glory and devotion. So the first question is, does your life reflect the awesome glory of God? Are you living in such a way that God is glorified in your life? Secondly, God made a way for you to be saved, and that is through faith in the work of Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave. Second question is, have you repented of your sins? Have you asked God to forgive your sins, to give you a new and a clean heart, to change your life? And have you asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior? Those two questions are of eternal consequence. And Lord willing, I hope that many of you answered yes, that you are reflecting the glory of God in your life and you have repented of your sins. And so this final question is kind of directly for For those of us, those of you who are in Christ, and that is, what are you doing to make this glorious good news of Jesus known to all? If hell is a reality, and it is, hell is a reality, what are you doing, if you've been saved from that, what are you doing to make Christ known? What are you doing to ensure that your life is conformed to the image of Christ? What is the image of Christ? It is perfection. It is holiness, it is righteousness, it is purity in thought, word, motive, and deed. If you've been saved from hell, if you've been delivered by Christ, by his work through the power of the Spirit, 
You ought to be proclaiming this wonderful news from the rooftops. Are you? Are you making Christ known? Are you glorifying him in everything that you say and do? That is really, I think, one of the ultimate takeaways from this text. We see God as glorious. We see him as mighty and powerful creator, ruler, judge. We see him as savior. And when we see that God, we go to him. We run to him in faith and repentance. And our lives prove that we are devoted to him. We love him, and therefore, as we read earlier, keeping his commands is not burdensome. We want to keep his commands because we love him. We want to obey him, and we want to please him. So may we go out from here, and if you don't know Christ, I pray that today is the day that you come to faith, that you repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and place your faith in Christ. But friends, if you're already in him, I pray and I hope that you see this glorious vision of our God, and you devote every moment, every breath that remains in your life to serving him, to making him known, and to giving him the honor and the glory that he and he alone is worthy of and that he is due. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we...